Welcome to the Theopus Podcast. I am Peter Lighthart, and I'm here today with James B. John and Alistair Roberts. Jeff Myers, who is uh, usually with us, is uh, away with presbytery responsibilities. He'll be joining us, we hope, uh, in the near future to uh, as we take up a new series on the a letter to James. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background recording and editing, and he'll be smoothing everything out. We wish you a happy Easter. Uh, we're recording just a couple of days after Easter, and we pray that the resurrection of Christ would be uh, showing its power and its joy and its light in your life. We're in the middle of a series in the uh, letter of Paul to the Colossians. We have been working on this for a couple of months now. This started out with a couple of episodes where we just talked about Paul's theology and recent study in Paul theolo- Paul's theology. Uh, we looked at the phenomenon of epistolary literature as a particular means for apostolic ministry. And then since then, we've been working our way through Colossians fairly slowly. Uh, and uh, that's going to lead up eventually to uh, another epistle. Our next series is going to be on the Epistle of James. Uh, Jeff Myers, our compatriot on this podcast, has just published a commentary on James that has been in the works for a couple of decades. I finally saw some physical copies of that in the last few weeks. Haven't had a chance to look at it in its printed form, but uh, I've listened to Jeff teach on James for a long time, and I've read the book in order to give a blurb to it. And uh, it's an outstanding piece of work, and I think you'll find it very edifying and relevant as we get into the letter of James in the next uh, month or so in the podcast. But right now we're in Colossians chapter three, and uh, as we reflected back, at least as I reflected back, I couldn't remember exactly where we had stopped. We had at least gone through the early verses of, uh, of Colossians 3, where Paul is talking about our union with Christ in his ascension, the fact that we died and our lives are now hidden with Christ and God, and then the implication of that, since we are dead, we are to put to death those members of our earthly bodies that are means of death, that are ways of death. He lists different vices in verses 5 and 8 of chapter 3 that we must put to death. He commands Colossians and us not to lie uh, and to lay aside the old self. And then he's going to move into a positive side. This is typical in Paul that there's this putting off and putting on, put to death and bring to life, that kind of pattern. We put things to death by the power of the crucifixion of Jesus because we've been united to his death. Therefore, we can put to death the flesh and earthly things, because we've been united to his resurrection and the power of the resurrection is in us by the spirit. Because of that, we can put on new life and we can put on the virtues of new life. So we were we ended up roughly in chapter 3, verses 10, 11 or so. But uh, one thing I wanted to note before we get started on those, on those verses is the theme of Thanksgiving that pops up here at the end of chapter 3 and into the early part of chapter 4. This isn't the first time we've had references to Thanksgiving in the, in the letter. In fact, Paul begins this after the greeting in chapter one. The first thing he says is, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. So, Paul begins with thanksgiving. Uh, he mentions again in verse 12 of chapter one that he's giving thanks to the Father who's qualified us to share the inheritance of the saints in light. Uh, he uh, refers again to gratitude as a, uh, one of the key features of walking in Christ in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. But then particularly as we move into this section that begins in chapter 3, verse 12 or so, and on through the early verses of chapter 4, we have this refrain 
of being thankful. So uh, verse 10, Paul says, put on the new self. Part of that is putting on these virtues of compassion, kindness, humility, and so on, and the peace of Christ, girding ourselves with love, and then the, the refrain in verse 15 of chapter 3, be thankful. And then he's got a couple of verses about the word of Christ dwelling in us, about songs and hymns and spiritual songs, and that ends in verse 17 with giving thanks to the, to, through him to the God and Father. So uh, that's another reference to Thanksgiving. Then we have the, these household rules and roles that we're going to look at in the, in the next episode. He speaks to wives, husbands, children's fa- children, father, fathers, and slaves, and masters. Uh, and then that ends in verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert with an attitude of thanksgiving. So each of these sets of instructions, the, let the peace of Christ rule and be thankful. Sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs and be thankful. Do all things in the name of Christ and be thankful. Uh, wives, husbands, children, fathers, masters, slaves, follow Christ. Uh, remember that you submit to the, to the heavenly Lord and then pray giving thanks. So thanksgiving is a, a recurring refrain throughout this section. And one of the, one of the dimensions of this, I, I think um, I've been struck over the recent years with Paul's statement in 1 Timothy 4, where he talks about the, the goodness of creation, everything created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's uh, received with thanksgiving because it's sanctified by the word of God in prayer. So things are not only good by virtue of creation, but things are consecrated consecrated to our use, consecrated as God's things by our prayer, by the word of God, and by thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is kind of a universal act of consecration. So we are holy people. The things that we have are holy things, and they're holy things because we give thanks. And we have a similar kind of, uh, that's, I would suggest is in the background here, we have this refrain of being thankful. We don't have any reference specifically to thanksgiving as a, as a consecrating act, but we have this refrain of giving thanks that pertains to, to words that we speak, acts that we do, the roles that we fulfill, all of those are infused with and surrounded by and intertwined with thanksgiving. And so it's not just the things that we receive that are consecrated by our thanksgiving, but the words that we speak are consecrated by a continuous act of thanksgiving. And the actions that we perform, whatever we do in word or deed, we do it in the name of Christ, giving thanks to the Father. Whatever role we're playing, whether we're in positions of authority as husbands or masters or positions of subordination, children and slaves, for example. All of those are to be done in thanksgiving, and all of them are by thanksgiving consecrated to God. So I think that connection between thanksgiving and, and, uh, and consecration is a, is a fruitful one, and it, I think it, it fits in this setting that Paul is uh, telling us how to live lives of constant holiness as the ones chosen by God, holy and beloved, uh, this is the way we live holy lives is by lives of constant thanksgiving. So I had a quick observation on um, verse 11, which maybe would sort of take us on to what's about to come. But um, Alistair asked a question about this kind of eightfold list that we get here in verse 11. There is, it's not Greek and Jew, um, circumcised and uncircumcised. And then these sort of four other uh, terms kind of the more loosely connected barbarian Scythian slave free um, but Christ is all in, in all it seems to me that this this has got like a significant um, structure to it insofar as that you've got two groups of two which are both kind of just binary oppositions Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised and then this um, looser 
list of four. And that mirrors back in um, chapter one and uh, where are we? Verse 16, where we get this sort of image of Christ sketched out by him, all things were created. And then again, we get two binary pairs in heaven and on earth, um, visible and invisible. Um, so the two twos, and then this kind of looser uh, list of, of four, whether thrones or not really whether, but just all thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Um, and then the same catch all at the end, um, but all things um, were created through him and, and for him. And, that strikes me as kind of sort of deliberate um, literary parallel and kind of strikes me as one that makes sense in the, the, the absence of these divisions, Greek, Jew, circumcised, et cetera, is precisely because of Christ's headship over all things. Um, and obviously that's going to be part of Paul's logic um, going forward. You know, masters, because they've got a, a master in heaven, are going to behave in, uh, in a certain way. And, and so this... Um, allusion back to Christ's headship here in chapter three um, f- feels like it's, it's present in the text to me. Yeah, are you suggesting, James, also that there might because of the because of the parallel structure of these lists, might there also be some kind of heaven and earth analogy in terms of the of the of the hosts? He's created all the hosts of heaven and earth, visible and invisible, and then you have these four categories of perhaps heavenly beings or heavenly rankings. And then the community on earth is structured in a similar way. So you have this heavenly host and earthly host, heavenly community, earthly community. Were you suggesting that kind of parallel also? Yeah, I am. And, and that's something that I've thought about more broadly in, insofar as um, I think you made the um, comment last time around, Peter, that you get this sense that what happens in heaven happens first um, and then it's worked out on the earth uh, or kind of expressing it differently you know we're to um uh live out on the earth heavenly realities and truths and you get some of the same um imagery i think used so whereas um there's been talk about uh, being knit together for instance in sort of heavenly terms in in chapter two we get then the image of clothing in in chapter three here and um putting on love which binds everything together um so yeah i, f- I feel like there is that that uh, parallel too. Yeah, that might also, um, if you extend that, I'd, this would be worth contemplating more. And this is first I first I have thought about this connection that you're making. If you uh, press it through the following verses of chapter one, it's talking about Christ as the beginning. We talked about uh, when when we uh, when we went through that part of the book, we talked about the various riffs on the first verse of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And Paul is giving a variety of different translations of the initial word beginning uh, in in RK and the Greek and different versions of that. And it's, it's kind of this created Christ as the created glue or coherence that holds everything together. And then we have in this kind of redemptive mode now in chapter three, we have this community on earth that's being fused together, uh, is cohering together according to the same reality that is Christ that holds the cosmos together. So you have this creation recreation kind of motif. And in both cases, of course, it's, it's uh, Christ who is the, as you said, the creator of all, but also in, in verse 11, quite strikingly says Christ is all and in all. Uh, and I, I think, I think I mentioned this last time is coming back to me vaguely what we talked about last time 
uh, that the, the idea that Christ is all seems to me a parallel with first, uh, first Corinthians 12, where Paul talks about the head and the body as a body is one and yet has many members. So also is Christ. So Christ is not merely the head of the body, but Christ is also a way of describing the entire body that is joined to the head. And I think we have the same kind of thing here. So we have the same kind of, without using the notion of coherence, we have the same kind of idea that Christ is the coherence, the one who knits together and brings together these diverse kinds of human beings, just as he brings the diversity of creation together in himself. I find the language of um, verses 12 and following interesting in the way that it presents Christian virtues. We often think about virtue primarily in terms of action. It's something that you exert. And yet here it's presented more in the form of adorning graces. And I'd be curious to know to what extent Paul's language here would have stood in contrast with the more typical language that you'd find about virtue within the surrounding society. Particularly, you can imagine the way that many people in Rome would have responded to this sort of language within the Roman Empire. The sorts of virtues that he's presenting would have been presented by the surrounding society as largely weak and servile, um, to be um, lacking in honour. These are not spirited virtues. They're lacking in power and dominance. They're generally unmanly. Um, You're not sticking up for yourself. You're forgiving. You're showing compassion. And these virtues are very much presented in terms of a womanly mode of virtue. To adorn yourself with graces is not necessarily what you'd expect for a man. A man exercises virtues. And yet the language that Paul uses here is quite distinctive, that as we are beloved, we adorn ourselves with certain behaviours. And I would be curious for someone who's actually embedded within the language of um, Roman and Greek virtue, would this have really stood out? Would this have seen, seemed arresting and strange um, and maybe challenging in its unmanly character? Yeah, I had exactly the same thought. Uh, these are the thought, the word I was, that was rattling around in my head was soft. These are soft virtues, but I think exactly they seem uh, feminine rather than masculine virtues. I'd, I poked around a little bit to see if I could find anybody who had done a kind of comparative study of Greco-Roman uh, notions of virtue and where these might fit. I don't know anybody who's done that. I, it's some, if it hasn't been done, it definitely needs to be done. My guess would be that these are these would not be primary kinds of virtues in most Greek or Roman ethical texts, but I, I don't know that for sure. And I don't know where these might find some, find some purchase, but I think, yeah, that, I think it's, uh, I'll just leave it as a question that as, and reiterate the question. I think it's definitely worth, worth uh, investigating. It's also put, it's also built on the identification of the Colossians in verse 12 as a chosen, holy, and beloved, which I think several, several levels of significance there. These are all descriptions of Israel, the chosen people, the holy people, the beloved uh, of the Lord. They're all descriptions of Jesus, the true Israel. He's the elect one. He's the holy one of God. He's the beloved son. I wonder if we, there's a kind of deep Trinitarian connection, chosen by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, beloved in the Son, 
but those the virtues are growing out of that identification of the Colossians as the true Israel, true Israel because they're united to Jesus, the true Israel. And then the life that they're supposed to lead is the life that Jesus led, uh, who is the true Israel. They're supposed to be mimicking him and put on the virtues that he, that he displayed. So uh, compassion, for example, is the, is the first one that's bowels of compassion, I think is probably the King James version. Uh, my NASB has heart, but, but bowels or kidneys or some kind of viscera, it would be a better, something lower down in the abdomen would be a more accurate, uh, uh, accurate rendition. But that's, that's a description of uh, that. That's a description that comes out of, uh, it just describes Jesus attitude toward the sick, the weak, those whom he's coming to heal. I think it's also the same. I, I, I looked this up a couple of weeks ago and I didn't go back and check it. I think it's the same Greek terminology that's used to translate compassion words in the, in the Hebrew Bible. One of which at least has a direct connection or etymological connection with the idea of womb. So some scholars suggest wombliness as a, as a kind of etymologically etymological way of uh, describing the, the Hebrew term. And I think that the Greek term here is, is linking back to that. So that would, that would be a specific way of highlighting your point, Alistair, that these are, these are more feminine virtues than masculine ones. And in addition, the, the way in which it's presented as a sort of putting on, we tend to think of virtue very much in terms of action. But as Paul talks about elsewhere, I think it's in um, Titus 2, about adorning the doctrine of God our Savior, the way in which Christian virtue is not merely a matter of acting in a particular way um, that expresses certain characteristics of Christ, for instance, but it's a way of um, clothing the message that we preach in a way that is glorious and beautiful and attractive. And that aspect of Christian virtue, it seems to me that whole vocabulary is one that is fairly underexplored. It doesn't necessarily come to mind initially when we talk about virtue. But yet here and elsewhere in Pauline literature, it seems to be a very important motif that we are those who dress ourselves with Christian graces that um, bring honor and glorify Christ. We can think about the way in which more generally, this idea of the wife as the glory of her husband, the church should be the glory of Christ, and the way that it dresses itself with certain graces is one of the ways in which that occurs. I mean, it's obvious. Uh, obvious that we can make uh, contemporary applications of the of this kind of virtue list. Um, if this is what's supposed to characterize Christians in their public conduct, in their conduct before the world, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Have to measure whether Christians in the in uh, in today's world exhibit those kinds of virtues. Is that is that the way we're dressed when we go out in public, as it were? Uh, is that the way the Christians are dressed when they're uh, engaging on Twitter or in some kind of public forum? These are not virtues that are at the expense of truth telling or courage uh, or other things that Paul elsewhere talks about. But they are, I think the way you put it, Alistair, is a good one. They are the adornments. So whatever, whatever courage we display, it has to be courage that is compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, and patient. Uh, that's, th- those, are, those are crucial dimensions of what we think is the more active things that we're, we're called to as Christians. But it has to have that adornment or it's not truly a Christian 
uh, not truly exhibiting a Christian flavoring. It doesn't truly adorn or glorify Christ if we're um, just acting with unkind, uncharitable, proud, ungentle boldness. That's that's not Christian boldness. Right. And these virtues seem in some sense to be, um, what's the word, a, a counterfoil to the divisions that we've had in verse 11. I mean, if you have a body where you stick together, you know, Greeks, Jews, circumcised, uncircumcised, etc. There's going to be a natural um, tension to it. There's going to be this sort of dynamic for it to uh, splinter up and to repel, if you like. They're going to be sort of repulsive um, forces and sort of put on then these particular uh, virtues, you know, humility, meekness, patience, etc., those seem to be intended to function as, as a glue, which is to hold together um, this natural force to um, splinter up. Yeah, I think that that certainly is um, certainly fits with what he says further on. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which we're indeed called in one body. So these virtues are virtues that are interpersonal, communal, ecclesial virtues. This is this is the this is the way of life that is adopted in a community, a communion. This is the way of life adopted in Christ. When you have the members of Christ, they're from such different um, origins and backgrounds, and have such different um, inherited inclinations and instincts, and so on. I, I wanted to emphasize one one other thing. Uh, the point I was making a moment ago about um, the last the last item on the list in verse twelve is patience, which I think is um, I think. Kindness and gentleness are in rare supply, at least in public discourse today. I think Christians are kind and gentle people. That's, I mean, that's that's true in in everyday life. Christians really do live up to this these kinds of virtues. I'm talking more about the public the public kind of persona that Christians have adopted, and the way that the way that non Christians perceive Christians. If you ask the if you ask the typical non Christian, you know, how what how do Christians behave? What are the what are the things that you see them displaying? Gentleness and kindness wouldn't be among them. And I think patience is another one. Again, in private life, perhaps in church life, Christians exhibit patience. But in our public persona, uh, there's we, we've adopted the kind of instantaneous uh, imagination of the world. We want solutions now. We want, we want things to happen now. And the idea that things might take generations to germinate uh, and gener- you know, things that are going wrong might take generations to correct. Or things that are going right may take, you know, a seed might take generations before it begins to sprout up through the ground. And the patience and perseverance to continue to sow and to continue to plow and to continue to work patiently and faithfully, that's a crucial virtue for Christians. And it's one that it's one that's uh, res- it's it stands against the pressure of uh, kind of our whole our whole social and technological setup. We're trained by our devices to want things to be done instantly. We have instant connections with all kinds of things. Um, and uh, we, we want solutions to be instant. And we need to, we need to uh, learn the, the rhythms of God's work and not press them into our, uh, our frenetic rhythms. And we need to, need to learn, learn the rhythms of uh, uh, seeds going into the ground, slowly germinating, gradually producing, gradually growing, and even uh, even after that, uh, the patience to wait for a harvest so we don't harvest prematurely. Uh, verse thirteen goes on with a couple of uh, 
clauses that fill out um, specifics. It gives verse twelve gives this list of five specific um, virtues or adornments, and then thirteen talks more in terms of actions bearing with one another, forgiving one another. And a couple of things I wanted to say about the, the terminology here. I've got in my New American Standard, I've got uh, bearing with one another in verse 13. But I think the, the more direct translation would be just bearing one another. So it, it's not just tolerating. You're, you're, you're putting up with people that are exasperating, but it has more the connotation that you're, you're carrying, you're, t- you're taking on their burdens and then forgiving each other, I think that the charizomai can can certainly mean pardon or forgive, but it also has a connotation of giving benefits, giving graciously, giving generously. And uh, forgiveness is a particular kind of generous, a generous gift or a generous response. A ben- uh, it's a way of giving a benefit to somebody who's wronged you. Uh, but I, I wonder if the terminologies, uh, if the term term actually has a, a wider connotation than just forgiving wrongs here. And the Lord has forgiven us, but the Lord has also graced us. It's the same verb at the end of verse 13. The Lord has also graced us, uh, elevated us, showed us benefits, and uh, and given us uh, given us a position. He's, he's wiped away our sins, but he's also given us something more than just uh, something more than just forgiveness. Um, so, I, I suspect that the word has a wider meaning here in uh, than just forgive. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on these questions, but it seems to me reading Paul, first of all, we're dealing with very occasional letters. Um, he's not presenting us a sort of systematic theology or system of ethics. But yet when I read Paul, I'm struck by the many different types of ethical approaches that he presents within his letters side by side with each other. So there's all sorts of um, emphasis upon following example, or there's command, and then there's um, virtue, and then there's graces. There are um, there's language of habit, and um, all of these things that would often put into different categories of ethical theories seem to go side by side quite naturally within Pauline ethics. And I wonder whether how we're supposed to think about this is this a healthy eclecticism within his ethics? Is it just because it's not systematized? Is there a sense in which the area of ethics is just a very broad one and we need all these different elements working alongside each other? And often our theories are far too narrowing and we will go down the line, for instance, of virtue ethics and miss the importance of command within that system. How should we understand Pauline ethics has a larger system. We're seeing something above the surface in his letters. Is there some deeper principle or unity? Uh, it certainly seems that way with his discussion of love in verse 14. There is a, an underlying coherence in this principle of love that binds everything together. But how are we supposed to understand the many different aspects and facets of ethics the many different virtue and vice lists that he gives, none of which aligns exactly with another. Is this sort of eclecticism something that we should be practicing? How should we understand this as an approach as distinct from others? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And, and one, I think one answer would, would be where you started, that uh, Paul is not providing a systematic presentation of any ethical system. The other thing I would say is that what we think of as ethics is 
I'm not sure that I'm not sure that Paul is working with exactly that category because every, everything he talks about as an aspect of the Christian life is rooted in our participation in Christ and participation in Christ's death and resurrection, our share in the Spirit. So behind whatever ethical exhortations he gives, there's this uh, foundational reality of our participation in in God through Christ, and the fact that our life, you know, as Paul says at the beginning of Colossians three, our life is now hid with Christ in God. So whatever ethical instruction he gives, whatever exhortations are rooted in that most basic, that's that basic reality. So not that I don't, I don't think they're secondary. I think it's just that there's a, there is a, the behavior that he calls us to, the actions that he calls us to, the the, the virtues that he calls us to produce and and cultivate, are different di- different dimensions or facets of that that underlying reality. I think you do have to do uh, something like an eclectic, a somewhat eclectic. If you're trying to systemize what Paul says, I think you have to do something eclectic, or maybe something along the lines of what uh, John Frame does with his triperspectival. Uh, ethical and theological investigations. So you've got a normative dimension. You've got you do have a command dimension. Uh, you've got an existential dimension that would would encompass virtues, and and you have a, a situational dimension that would encompass uh, interpersonal and and social and uh, political ethics. So I think something like that probably encompasses Paul. But although I don't, I wouldn't say that Paul's working with that kind of system in mind. But I think you do have to you have to find some way to bring together those different dimensions. And I, one of the things that implies, Alistair, is that uh, trying to do Christian ethics in one mode among others, you know, a simply co- a divine command ethic as the one mode of Christian ethics or a virtue ethic as the one mode of Christian ethics. Paul spoils any effort like that. And I, it, it, um, for us to try to construct a Christian ethics, you know, if, you, if you want to construct a Christian virtue ethic and say, we're doing this as, as a heuristic or as one dimension of a much richer and more uh, varied kind of ethical uh, teaching. It's fine if you recognize that you're doing some, some slice of what the, what the Bible teaches. But um, if you try to encompass everything under one or the other, those ethical styles, I don't think that's, that's just not going to work. It's not going to be able to encompass everything that Paul says. The role of love within the picture, um, he brings out quite powerfully in verse 14, and this is a common theme in different forms within Pauline theology. So we can think about the way in which he picks up similar points to the ones made by our Lord in relationship to the principle of love, that love is that by which the law is fulfilled. Um, Think about the two great commandments and in Romans 13, that whatever there is within the law um, is fulfilled in love because love does no wrong to the neighbor. And so love is the fulfillment of the law. And then alongside that, there's this, first of all, love is the sort of reality into which everything else can be boiled down. It's the, the white light that's refracted into the various virtues and graces. But on the other hand, it's also that in which everything reaches its greatest height um, at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, the greatest of all of faith, hope, and love. And then it's also that without which everything else is empty um, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13. And that principle of love really does come 
into the foreground within New Testament ethics to a degree that we don't find within Old Testament ethics. Jesus' teaching about the greatest commandment is one that's repeated at several different points, both within the Gospels and outside of the Gospels. That principle of love brings into a sort of clarity an internal moment of the entirety of ethics. But it's also not just a print. A principle is something that's embodied within what Christ himself has done, that he is the one in whom, we, in whom we see what love really is. And from that love, everything else starts to come into clarity. There's a moment almost of epiphany. And within that one principle of love, we can discover everything else hidden, but also through the refraction of love into all these different other um, virtues, we can see something about the character of love itself. There's a sort of condensation and ex exposition of the reality of Christian virtue in that relationship that constantly exists between love and all the other virtues. It binds everything together and gives them their co coherence. But everything else is a way in which those, that central reality of love is unpacked. And so exploring the relationship between the central principle and all the exposition of that is one of the ways in which we understand the law. It's the way in which we understand um, every other aspect of Christian virtue. So there is a, a logic here. It's a logic that is not just a system. It's bound up with a person. It's bound up with what we have discovered and seen in Jesus Christ. And the fact that this is um, revealed not just as a, um, as a part of, for instance, the principles that we are given within the law itself in the Old Testament. We do have it there, but the fact that it's so closely bound up with the revelation of Christ, I think, helps us to understand something about the character of Christian ethics more generally. That it's never just a system. It's always grounded in the reality of what God has done in history, and particularly in the event of Jesus Christ. I think the following verses also give us an, another another way that Paul is departing from from an easy systemization of his uh, of his ethics because he goes on to talk about the word of Christ richly dwelling within you and ex unpacks that expounds on that by talking about singing so and I think then uh, we had a an email from a uh, listener uh, Timothy Varner who uh, made some comments on these verses which were helpful. And uh, Tim pointed out that the there's one exhortation, verses six, verse 16, that is, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. The, the teaching and admonishing are participles that are dependent on that original, that original exhortation. Uh, and then the singing is also dependent on that original exhortation. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That happens through teaching and admonishing that happens through singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Part of our living in Christ, living out the life of Christ, living out these virtues and um, these graces in our lives is living with the, the word of Christ dwelling within us. And that happens through song, among, among, other, uh, among other means. So that doesn't fit easily in any ethical system. It's not, it's not divine command ethics. It's more liturgical kind of understanding of how ethical formation takes place. It's taking place through uh, teaching and admonishing that occurs in the, in the act of communal singing. Singing is a form of ethics 
makes me think of the way in which we have this movement in the Old Testament from the world, the word that's externally proclaimed to a word that's dwelling within and empowering. So the movement from the word of the commandment that the person says amen to, to the word of wisdom that has been in, embedded and internalized that can be used to judge and give light within the world to the word that has been placed upon the lips and consumed by the prophets so that he speaks with power and authority into a situation as he bears the word of the Lord himself. But within the Psalms, I think we have a very special manifestation of what this indwelling of the commandment of the Lord involves. There's this movement from the second person imperative of you shall do this and you shall not do this to the first person pronouncement of the willing compliance and not just compliance but um, willing outliving of the purpose of the Lord so we see within the Psalms there's not just this this ascent to some word that's outside of us the word has been meditated upon it's been taken within and now it has conscripted the emotions the desires and then is expressed appropriately in loving song and that indwelling of the word naturally takes form in this bringing together of the whole body, the emotions, and the tongue in this expression of joy that we see within song. I think we can see the ways in which at the heart of every one of us, there is song. Song is that which elicits the emotions and the desires. It's that which coordinates body and tongue. We move to song. And the more that the word of Christ takes hold of us, the more that it will be something that naturally wants to find its expression within song and within the delight and the um, emotional expression that song invites. Just a couple of comments on further comments on verse 16. Um, Paul uses this terminology of rich, riches or treasures which he's used in some other previous sections, verse uh, chapter uh, one, verse 27, been manifested to the saints to whom God will to make known the, what is the rich, what are the riches of his glory in of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Uh, chapter two, verse two, your hearts may be encouraged and knit together in love, attaining to the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. So there's this, there's this, uh, theme of the richness or the wealth of God that's uh, been already already uh, presented and introduced earlier in the letter. And now here it's connected with a wealth that dwells in us, the wealth of the word of Christ. And that word of Christ dwells in us, again, in part through singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which I take to be different categories of, of psalms primarily. Those are, those are different ways of describing different kinds of Psalms from the Old Testament Psalter. Uh, the other thing I wanted to highlight was the fact that you have these, uh, the song is going in two directions. Singing is a way of teaching and admonishing one another. There's a one another dimension to it. Uh, there's a, there's a horizontal dimension to our singing. And if you sing some of the, sing some of the Psalms, you can tell, you know, that this is the case that the Psalms are addressed to the listener to other listeners, um, uh, some traditional hymns are this way. They're traditional hymns that are 
hymns of exhortation or comforts that are directed to the singer and to the people to whom he's singing. But then at the end of verse 16, there's obviously also a vertical dimension. We sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Uh, so both of those dimensions are uh, present. It's not, we shouldn't think of our singing as merely an act of uh, worship to God that excludes or ignores the instructional horizontal dimension, uh, nor vice versa, that it should simply be horizontally, uh, horizontal and instructive ad admonition to, uh, to others. But it's both of these dimensions that, uh, that, and that's, it's by doing that through that teaching and admonishing that includes thankfulness to God in our hearts. That is the way the word of God, word of Christ comes to dwell richly within us. I wonder if you all have any thoughts on the verse 17. I think we'll close out the episode with this verse, but obviously this is a universal statement. It's um, talking about the devotion of all of our lives uh, in word and deed to the Lord Jesus. And it's sanctified, as I said at the beginning of the episode, by thanks to the Father. But I'm wondering what, um, what the phrase in the name of the Lord Jesus does here. Uh, how is it that we speak in the name of the Lord Jesus or act in the name of the Lord Jesus? Uh, we can we can imagine cases where that's explicit. You know, you you give a uh, uh, you you give charity. You help somebody who's in need, and you say, "I'm doing this because I'm a Christian and because Jesus is my is my Lord." So you do it in the name of Jesus, speaking it overtly. Uh, but is is that what is that what Paul's talking about, or is there some uh, some other sense in which uh, we're to do and speak everything we do in the name of Jesus. I find it interesting to compare and contrast the way that Paul expresses things here with the way that he expresses much the same things in Ephesians chapter 5. So in that passage we have from verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there it seems that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that, you're, that is mentioned is referring to the act of thanksgiving, to that particular act. Whereas here in Colossians, it's a broader reference. It's doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So I'm curious whether... The extent to which we're supposed to read these passages alongside each other and maybe try and discern some of the connections that Paul is um, operating in terms of. Is he thinking, for instance, of our more general activity as at every point in some way directed to God and that as we act in the name of the Lord Jesus, there is constantly this activity of giving thanks to or relating that activity to the Lord? Or is there a sense here of authority that maybe does not come out to the same extent within Ephesians? Yeah, so you're, you're suggesting that in the name of would be with the authority of, that would be part of it, or um, under the authority of, you're acting in whatever you do or say, you're acting as a, by the delegation of Jesus. Uh, so that, is, that the, is that the sense that you're taking it? Partly. I I suppose what makes me curious is the fact that you have so many of the same expressions that um, Paul gives in Colossians, he gives in Ephesians, and it's the interesting substitutions or the changes 
that invite further reflection. So, for instance, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly takes the form of be filled with the Holy Spirit in Ephesians. And in Ephesians, you have the reference to doing, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The name of our Lord Jesus Christ is very much connected with that specific act of thanksgiving. Whereas here, it's a more general activity of whatever you do, doing it in the name of the Lord Jesus, and then giving thanks to God the Father through him. So I'm curious about the ways that Paul is expressing very similar sentiments or convictions, but doing so in ways where the elements are slightly changed in their relationship to each other and wondering to what extent we're supposed to see in those differences insights into the underlying logic of his theology. Yeah, I've been wondering about that as well, Alistair. So, I mean, the initial section, when we were looking at um, verse 13, onwards, like bearing with one another, um, forgiving each other, etc., putting on love, which binds everything together, is very similar to um, chapter four of Ephesians, um, talking about the way in which we've been called. um, Verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Um, So very similar things. But there, there is again the, the link explicitly to the spirit rather than to Christ, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace there is one body and one spirit just as you've been called um it goes on to talk about one body and, and baptism and um I, I wonder if there's just a slightly different underlying theology which is leading paul to make these points um we we could think about galatians alternatively where you've got the same kind of two contrasting lists as you have in um Colossians 3. Um, so we looked at the two sort of fivefold lists that put to death, therefore, what is earthly, um, verse 5, sexual immorality, impurity, etc., versus the put on then as God's chosen ones of verse 12. And in uh, Galatians, you get those same two um, lists, but in terms of the spirit and the flesh, rather than in terms of what is earthly and what is um, above, I guess. So um, sort of. Uh, the things of the flesh um, are evident, 519, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, etc. Um, but the fruit of the spirit, and again, it starts with love um, and goes on to include sort of joy, peace. And I wonder if, I mean, in some sense, I'm just sort of batting the question back at you, but I, I wonder if there is a, um, a, a different in, difference in emphasis in the uh, triune uh, emphasis that Paul has in some of these epistles, and that I wonder if that's then being um, followed through later when it comes to the more uh, the more command based uh, part of the letter. The possibility of a, a reference to the Trinity shaping the way that Paul is approaching these things is certainly an interesting one. I, I do wonder though where that leaves us with. Um, Colossians, because in Ephesians, there does seem to be that Trinitarian structure and being filled with the Spirit, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet here, you might expect to find the Spirit, and yet you just have the word of Christ, the name of the Lord Jesus, and then giving thanks to God the Father. Um, So 
it doesn't seem to be a, a Trinitarian structure, which would be one, one of the first things that you might look for. I mean, one thought I had about uh, verse 17 is the parallel between the phrasing the, in the name of here with reference to words and deeds, which appear to be words and deeds done in reference to other people, and the phrasing of in the name of Jesus that's used in the Gospels when Jesus talks about prayer. Whatever you ask, if you ask it in my name, then the Father will give it to you. And um, I wonder if the part of the suggestion here is that for Paul, our words and deeds, they're, they're uh, accompanied by thanksgiving, verse 17 says, and uh, they're also, in some sense, acts of prayer. So even our, our songs are directed as teaching and admonishing to one another and also thankfulness to God. Our other words and actions are also acts of prayer, even though we're acting and speaking uh, toward other human beings, we're doing them in the name of the Lord Jesus. And that uh, accompanied by thanksgiving turns uh, those actions and words into acts of uh, devotion to God and to uh, worship and, and petition to God. So it, it, it kind of uh, pushes in the direction of uh, prayer as a uh, perspective on the whole of the Christian life, uh, prayer, prayer without ceasing would include not just overt acts of prayer, but actions done in the name of Jesus uh, that we're doing, acts of service that are done in the name of Jesus, words of encouragement or words of rebuke that are done in the name of Jesus. Those all become part of our act of praying continuously to the Father. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.